You're listening to Identity Theft by Alana Terry, narrated by Becky Downey, and sponsored by the award-winning Kennedy Stern Christian Suspense series. Visit alanaterry.com slash unabridged to get the first three-book bundle in the Kennedy Stern Christian Suspense series today. And now, enjoy today's episode of Unabridged, the Christian Fiction Audiobook Podcast. Chapter 8 The walk back to her apartment seemed to take hours. Was she really doing the right thing? Was she ready to pack and go? She felt bad leaving the daycare on short notice, but Kim and one other part-time worker could pull together to make up her extra hours. Attendance was low this time of year anyway, with so many families going fishing or camping or vacationing in the lower 48. She was probably doing the daycare's budget a big favor. She thought about Carl and Sandy, about how easy it would be to hop on a plane and fly back to Massachusetts. If she had the money, that is. She could sell her car in town, maybe get one or two grand for it. That was a start. Enough to get her back home. Or put down a payment on an apartment in Anchorage. A very small apartment. What should she do? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Yeah, well, so far his plans for her life hadn't worked out all that swimmingly. It was time for her to make her own decisions, make her own plans, whatever that meant. She got home and pulled the small suitcase out from under her bed. Driscoll had told her to keep a small bag packed and ready so she could take off at a moment's notice if her cover was ever blown. She had packed it four years ago and never opened it since. She couldn't remember what was in it anymore. She took the contents out one at a time and laid them on her mattress. Two blouses, a pair of jeans, hairbrush, toothbrush, toothpaste, socks, underclothes, and a coat. That was all. You could study the whole thing without learning anything about her except her bra size. How was it that her whole life had been stripped away from her until all that was left was this little carry-on full of belongings that meant nothing to her? It was because they weren't hers. They weren't Lacey's. They belonged to an imaginary woman named Joe, who worked at a daycare, had never gone to college, and lived in a remote town in Alaska where the temperatures could drop to negative 50 over Thanksgiving. She had been living Joe's life for too long. She put the nondescript items back in the bag and pulled out a few more things from her closet. If she was staying in Alaska, she should take the heavy winter stuff she had accumulated, but if she went back to the East Coast... No, she couldn't think like that. She hadn't made a single decision herself in four years, at least not an important one. Even dating Curtis had felt like part of her cover story, not something she would have done if she were still living her own life, if she were still lacy. She tried to ignore the memory of his expression when she left his house earlier. She had expected him to be hurt. Of course he would be. It would have been easier if he had tried to talk her out of moving or even lost his temper. Instead, he was so stoic, which wounded her even more deeply. 
She sniffed, reminding herself that nothing was finalized. She might spend two days in Anchorage. She might spend two years. All that mattered was that this was a decision she was making for herself. Nobody was making it for her. No Boston detective, no larger-than-life boyfriend, no former love who had materialized out of nowhere after four years of torturous waiting. Where she went after Anchorage was her choice as well. If she came back to Glen Allen, that would be her decision and no one else's. Same thing if she returned to Massachusetts to be with Carl and Sandy. If she accepted Curtis's proposal, or if she and Raphael resumed their romance after a four-year hiatus, or if she found someone else entirely down the road, or chose to stay single for the rest of her life, those were decisions only she could make. She wouldn't let anybody dictate her life any more. Her phone beeped, and she realized she had missed several texts from Raphael. She was avoiding him. It was all so strange, his coming back from the dead, and all his talk now about God and the Bible and Carl's church. His family had been Catholic, if she remembered right. He came to church with her on holidays, or if Carl and Sandy invited him over for lunch after the service, but it wasn't a big part of his life, hers either. They were too busy living to really settle down and dwell on the metaphysical for long. She knew there was a God, she knew the Bible was basically true, and she figured that one day she might actually study it on her own instead of just at the dining room table with her foster mom. How many Bible verses had Raphael mentioned last night when he came over? What had gotten a hold of him? She needed time to absorb it all. She sent him a text back. She had already decided she'd meet him for lunch and explain to him what she had just told Curtis. She was going to Anchorage until she figured out her next move, and if Raphael was the same man he'd been four years ago, he'd be okay with that. Her packing was interrupted by a knock on the door. Curtis? In all honesty, she would have felt hurt if he let her leave without trying to change her mind. But she wasn't ready. Not yet. She bustled into the kitchen where a pile of dirty dishes overflowed from the sink onto the counter and stacked themselves into precarious three-dimensional shapes. Great. Her landlord would love her for this. The knocking again. It wasn't like Curtis to be impatient. Raphael, maybe? But she had just texted him and made plans to meet in an hour. The door burst open. She slammed her rag onto the counter and stormed into the dining room. What are you... She froze when she saw who it was. You didn't lock yourself in. Detective Drisclay stood in the middle of her living room, frowning. He pointed his paper coffee cup at her door. How many times did we tell you to lock yourself in? Lacey couldn't move, couldn't speak, couldn't explain to him that this was Glen Allen, Alaska, where people went on month-long vacations without locking up. While they were thawing out in Hawaii or whatever warm coast they escaped to, their neighbors brought in the mail and placed it on their dining room tables. Driscoll pulled out the chair where Curtis and Raphael had both sat the night before. He was a detestable sight. Lacey didn't trust him enough to take her eyes off him. What are you doing here? she asked. 
You need to get your things together. He spoke so casually, as if they were discussing a piece of math homework. Lacey had always despised math. You said we were done meeting face to face. He shrugged and took a big swig of coffee. Things change. Driscoll scanned her apartment. She knew he was taking everything in. He wouldn't miss a single detail. So how much time do you need to pack? The room was spinning. Her head was as light as the helium balloons Raphael had won for her at the Salem Fair so many years ago. She steadied herself on the table. Do I have to? He shrugged. You're a free citizen, but obviously I can't guarantee your safety if you fail to comply. Why, she demanded, ignoring the nagging suspicion growing in her gut. Your cover's blown. Someone in the trooper's office is getting a little too nosy. That was just Curtis. He wouldn't- We've never lost a placement yet, Driscoll interrupted. You think I want the first time to be on my watch? Where do you want me to go? You know the drill. You get all the details once you're safe. It's a total reboot. New papers, new name, the works. I'll use the bathroom while you get your bag. I assume you've kept one packed and ready like I told you. Lacey forced herself to look him in the eye, even though her insides were quivering like one of the many minor tremors she had experienced since moving here. No. No, you don't have a bag, or no, you don't want me using the toilet. It's a long drive to Anchorage, you know. She took a deep breath. No, I'm not going with you. I'm not going through it all again. He set his cup on the table and looked at her as if she had just told him she wanted to visit the moon because she was in the mood for some cheese. So I guess you'll just sit tight here, wait for the mafia to come into your unlocked house and finish what they set out to do four years ago? The trial's over. Nobody has any reason to hurt me. He frowned. Revenge can be quite a strong motivation. Sometimes I think you fail to appreciate just how powerful these men are. I'm leaving Glen Allen anyway. I don't need you to relocate me. He shrugged. It's a free country. But I beg you to remember that these men know your identity. Good, she thought to herself. That means I can go back to being lacy since the Joe cover's already blown. All you know for sure is that the trooper knows who I am, right? Good, because I just told him today when I broke off our engagement. She didn't know why she mentioned that part. What would Driscoll care? He shrugged. You think about it while I use your toilet. After Lacey moved in with the Lindgrens, her foster mother told her, Hatred is a force as strong as death itself. If that was true, Driscoll would have suffered a fatal catastrophe as he sauntered uninvited down her hall. Lacey stared at his half-empty coffee cup and wanted to spit in it. It was a childish gesture that wouldn't have solved anything except relieve her tension for a few seconds. She ignored the sweaty, clammy feeling around the collar of her blouse. She had already resolved to get out of Glen Allen, but there was no way she was going through an entire relocation with Driscoll and his cronies. She'd drive into Anchorage, slip in anonymously amongst the hundreds of thousands of people there, and stay put until she made up her mind. This was her life, her future, after all, 
not his. He came out of the bathroom and picked up his paper cup. You ready? Where's your bag? I said, I'm not going. You were serious? There was something in his deadpan expression that might have been humorous under different circumstances. She nodded. He sighed. I'll stick around through the end of the day. Call me when you come to your senses. Thanks for joining us today for Unabridged, your go-to podcast for unabridged Christian fiction audiobooks. You've been listening to Identity Theft, an Alaskan refuge Christian suspense novel by USA Today bestselling author Alana Terry. Hit subscribe so you don't miss future chapters, and be sure to tune in at the end of the season for a special behind-the-scenes episode about the making of Identity Theft. I'll tell you all about where I got my ideas for this book, how I came up with my characters, and the embarrassing realization that I had months after I wrote the story when I realized I wrote myself into this novel. Today's unabridged installment was sponsored by the Kennedy Stern Christian Suspense Audio Box Set. Audible listeners get the first three books in the best-selling Kennedy Stern Christian Suspense series for just one credit. New Audible listeners can download the first three audiobooks in this gripping, relevant series totally free with an Audible trial. Go to alanaterry.com slash unabridged to dive into the Kennedy Stern Christian Suspense audiobook series today. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.